That was the opening music from... Is this another 20th Century Fox movie? I think it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Daryl F. Zanuck, yeah. That was the opening music from 20th Century Fox's The Grapes of Wrath. And uh, I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bob Johnson. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on iTunes. Just search for us using uh, Classic Movie Reviews as your search terms. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, if, if any of you feel like it, uh, go on iTunes and give us a rating, give us a comment. Uh, it'd be nice to have a, at least one or two comments in iTunes. We've had a few on our website, which is great, uh, but it's kind of cool to have them show up in iTunes as well. So uh, You were telling me, too, that the uh, number of subscribers has uh, continually increased, so that's always fun. Yeah, we're up over 100 now. Two weeks ago, we were at about 60, so that's pretty exciting. It was probably all the interest in Young Frankenstein. Oh, that was that was so, <laughs> such a good movie. So much fun. So totally opposite of this movie in terms of how I felt about uh, things afterwards, <laughs> after watching it. Oh, no it. kidding. They could not be more more different in, any, in every way possible. Um, I was looking up some background on John Ford since he's uh, made so many movies. Between 1939 and 1941, he made Stagecoach, Young Mr. Frank, uh, Young Mr. Lincoln, Drums Along the Mohawk, Grapes of Wrath, and How Green Was My Valley. All outstanding movies in the space of uh, about a little over two years. What a, what a productive and talented director. He's... He's one of my favorite directors for sure, and I'm not. I have to look this up, but the whoever did the cinematography for *Grapes of Wrath* was just outstanding. It was such a well-shot movie. I'm just looking here on my list that it won seven Academy Awards, but it didn't include cinematography. It it was best picture, best director. Henry Fonda, Jane Darwell, both won Academy Awards. Film editing, screenwriting, and sound recording. It's Hmm. interesting with with John Ford, we were talking before we started the podcast, depending on who you are as a reviewer and writer about him, he's been categorized as a left-wing person, a right-wing person, conservative, progressive, liberal. It's all over the map, I think. I certainly don't don't know this, but it seems to me like he made whatever movie he wanted to make and really didn't much care what people thought. Yeah, it seems like he wanted to he just was interested in making good film. You know, he wanted to make great movies. And I don't know uh what his political affiliation was and in trying to get through some of the comments and things on IMDB, uh it didn't really seem like he if anything, he probably was more left-leaning, more toward uh, the left, but it, it didn't seem very definitive to me because he also uh, supported uh, Nixon. So Right. He was, he was a supporter of uh, Roosevelt, Kennedy, and uh, President Nixon. Uh, I think he might have been just somebody that did whatever movie 
he thought he could do a good job at. And since he made about seven dozen of them that were all good, <laughs> I guess it, he yeah, was the, right. The movie had a fairly clear message, but at the same time, I felt like he laid it out there almost documentary style in in a lot of scenes. Uh, I'm thinking in particular when the Jodes. I do kind of want to go through this chronologically, but I uh, right, but, right. But you know, the the one that was really stood out to me that was hard to watch was when the Jodes first arrived at the camp in California. Um, not not when not the camp that they stayed at when they were on the way out there, but when they first arrived and. Uh, it looked like a, a refugee camp from a war zone, you know, and it, that, that scene, you could almost find something very similar to that maybe in the Mideast or, you know, uh, Eastern Europe, you know, from, from years ago when there were so many refugees from Sarajevo. Um, oh, totally. You know, even was, today, even yeah. today around the world for sure. So. But hey, well, uh, well, I agree. So, but shall we do chronological? Shall we let's try, try to, to do, do it chronologically? Let's try. <laughs> okay. uh, I'll if, let you take the lead, and I'll just work from my notes. And your notes are here now, and I, I'm ready to go. Um, so the first, the first thing was the opening music, which we we've sort of commented on the music in each of our reviews, and I think all the music in the movies that we've reviewed so far has been great it's been wonderful uh but not not so much in this movie i'm not a big fan of what they did with the music in the opening scene and then even through throughout the movie and then the end credits it it feels the movie the the movie's not a very upbeat movie i don't think but the music tends to be more on the upbeat side yeah i would agree i always listen to the music and it so many times reinforces the theme of the of the movie and makes it that much better for me but in this one it was kind of like it was there, but it didn't really impact it. And I wonder if that may have been the uh, intent, is it really wanted to focus on the story. I thought the same thing. I thought that the music was obviously chosen very conscientiously. I mean, there was it wasn't an accident uh, what music they chose. I, I think that it maybe was put in to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, just to try to counterbalance some of the really uh, heavy scenes that were coming up or had proceeded or followed, you know, the scenes that did have music in it. And there weren't that many scenes that actually did have music. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, one of the first things that struck me is when it opens up and uh, Henry Fonda's character, Tom uh, Jode, is, is walking across Oklahoma, having been paroled after four years in prison, and just the uh, the starkness of the landscape in black and white it really started to set the mood for me for the entire movie. It did. It did. It, it just, he sort of, he's just sort of off in the distance and slowly walking toward the camera. Uh, it, it's, it's, it kind of reminded me of the opening scene of Lawrence of Arabia where it's just the desert and you see this sort of shimmering figure off in the distance and it soon resolves into uh, Lawrence. Oh, that's a great comparison. Right, right. Uh, I thought of that one. But that, that opening scene with the dialogue between Tom Jode and the truck driver, I love that. Uh, how the truck driver <laughs> sort of needling Tom Jode to kind of figure out what's going on. And and uh, Tom Jode says, You're about to bust a gut to know what I've done, ain't you? Well, I had a guy to let you down. Homicide. 
<laughs> I know. Did you feel like uh, his character, Henry Ford, uh, Henry Ford, yeah, all right, listen to me. <laughs> Henry Fonda's character was really angry. It seemed like throughout the movie he was just, he'd really had it. He was fed up with he was, prison yeah, and the whole thing. I think he was very angry. Um, and actually that was the next scene I wanted to talk about. Well, a couple of scenes before this next one, but... Uh, you know, he gets left off, he starts walking toward his family home and meets John Carradine. And I just thought John Carradine was a great character. He had a great character as the ex-preacher in the movie. I, I think that's the best role he ever played in his career. I mean, it's just amazing to me how we, how we pulled that off. Yeah, my note here on John Carradine was that... Um, John Carradine was almost on like a spiritual or philosophical quest throughout the movie. He seemed like he had no destination in mind per se. It was just that he was sort of searching for answers to the meaning of life almost, you know. What what it meant uh, uh, what yeah. it meant to be spiritual, what it meant to be you know, in service of God. And I loved his little line about how he would go to comfort the women. You should have got yourself a wife. Why, at my meetings, I used to get the girls a glory shot until they about pass out. Then I go to comfort them. I'd always end up by loving them. I'd feel bad and pray and pray, but it didn't do no good. Next time, do it again. I figured I just wasn't worth saving. Paul, it says you was never cut out for no preacher. I never let one get by me if I could catch her. I was snoring. But you wasn't a preacher. A girl was just a girl to you. To me, these holy vessels. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real conflict for him. It was. <laughs> right. And I, I also was struck when they were talking and, and uh, Tom Joe described how he was sent to prison and how the matter of fact description of the killing of the guy in the dance hall after they'd been drinking. You've been out traveling around? Haven't you heard? It's been in the papers. No, I never. What? I've been in the penitentiary for four years. Excuse me for asking. I don't mind no more. I'd do what I'd done again. Kill the guy in a dance hall. We was drunk. He got a knife in me, and I laid him out with a shovel. Knocked his head plumb to squash. You ain't ashamed? No, he had a knife in me. That's why they only give me seven years. That was just like, so matter of fact. And how he'd do it again. Yes. Wow. Yeah, the, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think, he definitely didn't have any regrets about having done it. Um, and then they start walking, the two of them start walking, and you can tell that it cuts to a studio shot. And I, I actually really like those studio shots. It felt kind of claustrophobic, and it fit, it fit the mood. Um, it really did. They had a bit of fog in the background, um, and it, it did help move the story along. And then the next scene is the house where the, it, it, the wind is blowing, it's, it's pretty dark. The house looks deserted. It kind of looked like a, ha a haunted house to me. And is that the point where Dooley 
shows up. Yeah, he's he's hiding out in the he's house because he's, he's got no out, place yeah. to go. And he says that everybody's had he he they start talking to him and they want to know what happened and where are the Jodes because they're obviously not at the house. And Dooley says that everybody's headed out to California and we kind of learn what's been happening to the tenants and it does a flashback to what happened with his farm. Oh my gosh, yes, that flashback was amazing. Amazing. It really depicted the whole thing, and one of the family members tells the guy that's delivered the message that they have to leave, well, who do we shoot? They were just, they were so frustrated because nobody took responsibility for any of this. Back to the matter, Muley. After what them dust has done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. Why, one man and a tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. You just pay them a wage and take all the crop. Yeah, but uh, we couldn't do on any less than what our share is now. Well, the children ain't getting enough to eat as it is. And they're so ragged. We'd be ashamed if everybody else's children wasn't the same way. I can't help that. All I know is I got my orders. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Now, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. Well, I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. And some of us died on it. And that's what makes it iron. Being born on it. And working on it. And dying. Dying on it. And not no piece of paper with a writing on it. <laughs> well, they're all passing the buck from, I mean, it's the guy not. who delivers the message to say that it's not, well, it's not me. Well, it's not the landowner, it's the banker. Well, it's not the bankers. And and this was the first scene that really hit me kind of emotionally, which was, uh, he, he says, some of us were killed on the land, some of us died on it. That's what makes it ours, being born on it, working on it, and dying on it. And he's, he's just on his knees in tears. I know. And then shortly after that, these enormous tractors start rumbling across the farmland sort of the depiction of the industrial age coming to destroy this family's house, which, in fact, they they did. Yeah, and I... That, that struck me as really, really uh, intense, to say and, the least. And here's where, man, it was, it was the confluence of a massive environmental devastation because of the, the way that they were treating the land and how it got dried out and the dust storms and... 
and then the economic devastation of the the um, you know the late 1920s and into the 30s, and then the industrialization of of America. Really, it was that was all happening at the same time. It remind uh, the the Dust Bowl part reminded or brought to mind uh, Ken Burns' documentary about the Dust Bowl, which came out a couple years ago. This just brought it home even more. And the thing about it is this this kind of story was going on all over the country because uh, maybe not the Dust Bowl, but the unemployment rate in the 30s at a minimum was 25%, and in some places it was twice that. Didn't in you some s- places they didn't even know what it was. Yeah. Didn't you say that, I think in your notes you mentioned that John Ford sent out some uh, production assistants to double check the story of what was actually oh. happening in Oklahoma, just to make sure that because John Ford couldn't believe the, that it was as bad as what the story depicted, and the production assistants that, came yeah. back and said, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is real." And Roger Ebert was commenting on uh, Daryl F. Sanic, who was a fairly conservative uh, chief executive officer at 20th Century Fox. He also wanted it checked out because he didn't want to put the studio in the position of being called a, 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 a you know a red organization or, or or too left wing, and they got the same story that this in this in fact is what's going on. So Even I, some of the conservative reviewers of the movie said it's a great movie. I mean, it, it depicted pretty much what was going on at that time. Well, and I and I read that it was that the reality was even worse than what was depicted in the movie and that they toned it down in some parts because they thought people wouldn't still wouldn't believe, you know, how bad it actually was for some people. Oh, right. I read that same information. Yeah. That I think it was Ford, John Ford that said that. Yeah. Uh, so and it's uh, certainly more focused than the book. I tell you the book was a little broader in scope. Yeah. So then we get uh, back to the movie here. We get from that scene where they do the flashback. Uh, the next scene that kind of stood out to me was uh, meeting the Jode family. And that was just a funny scene when they're all sitting around the table having dinner. And Grandpa Jode was just such a funny guy and so full of life. And <laughs> Wait till I get to California. I'm going to reach up and pick me oranges whenever I want it. Or some grapes. No, 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 no. There's something I, I never had enough of. I'm going to get me a whole big bunch of grapes off in the bush, and I'm going to squash them all over my face and let the juice drain down off in my chin. Praise the Lord for victory. Maybe, maybe I'll get me a whole wash tub full of grapes and just sit in them and scrounge around in them until they're all gone. I sure would like that. I sure would like that. <laughs> the uh, and and Majo, oh, I tell you, uh, for me, she she makes the movie. Uh, Jane Darwell, it's just an amazing performance from beginning to end. And she, she was the strength of that family. She definitely was the the center of the family and kept them going. Uh, she was so worried about uh, Tom Joden, whether he had turned into a mad and mean person from prison, and she 
wanted to make sure that he was okay. But he, he did seem pretty mad. I don't think that he was mean, but he was definitely angry. He sure was. You know, one of the scenes before they actually get in that uh, Hudson Super 6 truck is Ma Joe going through all of the, well, there weren't that many, but the belongings that were in the house and the lighting on that scene and her looking at that, it was, even now when I recall it, it's so overwhelming because everything she had was was going on that truck along with, what, 10 people? Yeah, I think there was 10 tw- or 12 people. 12 people, 12 people? yeah. Well, wow. she, and she was burning some things too. She wasn't yes. even taking everything, and I think that she was looking at a postcard or something, and she put it into the fire. And I think she was sort of just saying goodbye to Oklahoma and and her old life because she knew she yeah. was never going to come back. I know a couple of weeks ago we were talking about finding a movie where there was a strong woman character. Yeah, and I and I think as a part of our Grapes of Wrath review, we found that person in her. Absolutely, she kept that family together. Now the kids, though, they think this is a great adventure, and they're running around saying, "We're somebody having a California." Kids, 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 you climb up on top. Al's going to drive, Ma. You sit up there with him and Grandma, and we'll swap around later. And then. About five minutes later, they cut to Grandpa, and he's not happy about going. He says, What's the matter, Grandpa? Well, I'm going to... What's the matter, there's... What's the matter? I just... I just ain't going, that's all. What do you mean you ain't going? We gotta go. We got no place to stay. I ain't talking about you. I'm... I'm talking about me. I give her a good going over all last night, and... I am a stare. But you can't do that, Grandpa. This year land's going under the tractor. We all got to get out. Oh, except me, and I'm staying. And they have to get him drunk to get him on the truck. So depending on who you were and kind of what your perception of this was, you were either really excited about it or you didn't want to go at all. <laughs> I, watching uh, Grandpa, and he probably looked at that truck and said, Holy smokes, there's no way they're getting me on that thing. It's a it's death a, trap. I, I could hardly. I know. You know, you're going to be coming down this way in a in a couple of months. Imagine making that trip in that Hudson Super Six. No thanks. You have to leave now. The truck <laughs> looked like it was going to fall apart at any minute. Oh my goodness! It was old in 1939. And then we get this. We get this montage. This travel montage of the family going down Highway 66, and we've got this really upbeat music. Adventure, yeah. and they're going through different towns, and and I, I think they chose that music to lighten the mood because we've just seen some pretty terrible things, and uh, you know I, I guess that's actually talking about it now is probably a good choice because can you imagine if it was just uh, those heavy scenes the whole way through? I think everybody would have left the movie and just been depressed for a week. Especially if they'd added uh, really uh, depressing music, that the, the the scenes from the road were all over the place. It's like 
the camp where the the man that was coming back from California said, there ain't no work, no way should you go there. And they had these leaflets that were printed up by the thousands. Well, and that guy, and then, that, that guy, I think, had one of the best scenes in the movie, even though he was mm-hmm. only part of the movie for a couple minutes. But he talks about how... I tried to tell you folks what it took me a year to find out. Took two kids dead. Took my wife dead to show me. But nobody could tell me neither. I can't tell you about them little fellas laying in the tent with their bellies swelled out and just skin over their bones. A shivering and a whining like pups. And me a running around looking for work. Not for money. Not for wages. Just for a cup of flour and a spoon of lard. Then the coroner comes. Them children died of heart failure, he said. He put it down in his paper. Heart failure? And that little belly stuck out like a pig bladder? That was that was really sad. I mean, just even thinking about it now kind of makes me get choked up a little bit. Oh, no kidding. And um, And then some of the people in the camp don't want to believe his story. Because they, they know they have to go. I thought about I thought about Twitter and and Facebook and texting these days and how we instantly can know what's going on around the world. All we have to do is you know check in with what is being reported, and in this case, they had no idea. All they had was a handbill saying that there were 800 jobs out in California and good wages, and this is the first time they hear that maybe that's not true, and they can't believe it because they've sort of pinned all their hopes on yeah. this trip. They have no idea what's actually happening out there. It's It was hard for me to get back in the context of what this would have been like in the late 1930s, given how we are today and the technology. So I agree with you. It's like these people, they're, they had no other way to go. You know, I was thinking of another scene because, I, like I say, it was kind of all over the place. When uh, Tom Jode's dad and those two little kids go into the restaurant and they want to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah, that was the next scene. And all they had was a dime. And the waitress said... Ten cent loaf. Well, would you... Could you see your way to cutting off ten cents worth? Give them the loaf. No, sir. We want to buy ten cents worth, that's all. Go on, it's yesterday's bread. Go ahead. Bert says to take it. Well... <laughs> may sound funny being so tight, but we got a thousand miles to go, and we don't know if we'll make it. Is them penny candies, ma'am? Which ones? There, them stripy ones. Oh, them? Well, uh, no. Them's two for a penny. Uh, give us two, then, ma'am. Oh, take them, take them. Thank you, ma'am. Them ain't two for a cent candy. What's it to you? Them's a nickel apiece candy. We better get going. We're dropping time. That's so long. Wait a minute, you got change coming. What's it to you? The thing that struck me were these two truckers 
who were watching this and they kind of empathized with grandpa and the two kids and they left a lot of money when they uh, went out to get in their trucks to pay for what the restaurant had given to the uh, to the people it, it it what it said to me was that there were people that cared about what was going on and it counterbalanced some of those uh, the those that didn't seem to care at all which come up later in the movie it was it was a really good scene with those two drivers. Yeah, within, let's see, we've got, yeah, that scene at the truck stop when they get the loaf of bread happens at about 48 minutes into the movie. And then we get the scene at 55 minutes into the movie where they have to stop for gas, and this is right before they are going to cross the desert. And this is a, this is a really important scene to me. It explains pretty much everything between the scene at the trucks at the gas station with the waitress and the two truckers who are actually very compassionate and want to want to help out, you know, even just a little bit that they can. And then the scene at the gas station right before they cross the desert, the two attendants at the gas station say, Holy Moses, what a hard looking outfit. All them Moses are hard looking Oh, but I'd hate to hit that desert in a jalopy like that. You and me got sense. Them Okies got no sense and no feeling. They ain't human. No human being wouldn't live the way they do. Human being couldn't stand to be so miserable. Just don't know any better, I guess. And I know they the literally countries. just don't think of these these Okies, as they call them, as as human beings. Even though they're the same. As I mean, there's they're just down on their luck, right? I mean, they they've got everything kind of lined up against them, and they don't have any option but to try to go out west to find work and to keep going. Uh, don't you think that a, that a little bit more compassion and understanding, like what was shown in that diner, would have helped out everybody? I mean, I, I, there's just so much of these people that had some power and had some land and had some work kind of taking advantage of these folks that just didn't seem like they had much in the way of luck or money or, you know, education. Well, I, I think that uh, is a key point in some of the criticism of the book and the movie, that there is a, a body of opinion from uh, people, some people, that there was a lot more compassion and caring going on than was depicted in the movie. And I think this is part of the reason why there's still this debate over whether the movie is is too pro leftist or should it be banned. And I remember reading about some of the uh, the uh, what do you call it? demonstrations about the movie and the book that took place that it was overstating the uh, the what was going on. Having not been there, I don't, I don't know my reading of what went on. This seems to be fairly accurate, but I. I just don't know. Well, one of the questions that I had from two weeks ago was why is the Grapes of Wrath, the book, still one of the top, you know, censored or banned books in the country? And I think it's just exactly this. I think it, depending on your political stance and viewpoint, it, you could either be seeing this as really a leftist, you know, propaganda book, or you could see it as maybe even the opposite of that. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I've started reading the book. I'm about halfway through. I've, I read it in high school, 
but I'm I'm reading it again, and it it's sort of like the movie. It depends. I think you could you could read it right. one way or the other. It really depends on your own your own beliefs. I was did, did you read the uh, the piece on some of the research about how in the Soviet Union they uh, allowed this movie to be shown from the time it came out in 1940 until 1948 but then they banned it they banned it in the soviet union because they realized that even in the u.s even the poorest people could afford a car <laughs> and i was like so you know the, the 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 opposition and the banning is from all over the place yeah for all kinds of reasons well we're going to take a break here bob and i actually talked for another 30 minutes about the movie so we've decided to have a part one and a part two for our Grapes of Wrath uh, movie review. So we'll post part one this week, and part two will come out next week. So until then, happy movie watching. Happy movie watching.